Hi, I'm James Jacobson. And I'm Pamela Lawrence. Welcome to Dog Edition, the first show designed for you to listen to while you walk your dogs. Today, we're going to explore the entanglement that is the human-dog bond and all its complexities. Our first story takes us to a hillside behind an elementary school where we meet a stray named by fate and rescued not once but twice. Just like a cat, Frankie seems to have nine lives and thanks to a group of determined neighbors, he's finally living his best one. Frankie's is a story of survival that you don't want to miss. Are we worthy of the dogs in our lives? Yes, of course we are. (laughs) I like your confidence. For our second story, we join a pair of filmmakers who documented the human-dog bond from a global and cultural perspective. From former child soldiers in Uganda to a pub in Scotland, We Don't Deserve Dogs is a movie that will have you mulling over just how worthy we humans are of a dog's love. And in our third segment, we'll discuss divorce, which is hard under the best of circumstances. Well, one family found a way to maintain a bond even as the family broke apart by adopting a family dog. Daisy the Divorce Dog is a tale that shows how humans deeply rely on dogs to get us through life's challenges. And then at the end of the show, we have our hydrant segment. So stop on by and hear some of the doggy headlines that captured our attention this week. So if you love dogs as much as we do, pause what you're doing, leash up your pup, and let's take a walk. We've got a lot to talk about on today's episode of Dog Edition. Hey Pepper, wanna go for a walk? Standing at the top of a hill alongside an elementary school in a suburb of San Francisco, you can hear kids playing Foursquare and daring each other across the monkey bars. Maybe some are trading lunchbox items. Scraps from those lunchboxes will fill the trash cans scattered around the perimeter of the blacktop. It's in this place that our next story begins. January 2019. Remember that date. A post titled, Lost Dog at Franklin Elementary, showed up on the neighborhood app called Nextdoor. It said, My wife was there at lunchtime and saw this dog by the parking lot with no collar. Do you know this dog? The accompanying picture was of a shaggy, cream-colored dog, matted and cautious-looking. More than 60 neighbors commented, offering advice on what to do, whom to call. One person mentioned... They'd seen the dog there over a year ago. Maybe it was a neighbor dog that kept getting loose. But maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was a dog in need. Some of the commenters organized themselves and planned a rescue mission. One of them was Debbie McKeever. Friday night, and it was like 5 o'clock, and it was pouring rain. And I said to my husband, I'm going out with a bunch of people to save a dog. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, there's this lost dog on the hill and we're going to go get this dog. And he looked at me like I was insane. The group met in the parking lot of Franklin Elementary School. The open and airy campus is a mix of buildings, portable classrooms, a sport field, and a blacktop, typical in the mild California climate. But it's enclosed by fencing and a wall for safety. You have to Go to the garbage can areas 
jump the six foot cement wall to get into this guarded area. And you literally had to have boots on. It's pouring rain, you're in the mud, and we get up there and there's no dog. We're like, you know, what? Undeterred, Debbie began to leave food for the dog every morning on her way to work. She and the group continued to meet regularly in the evenings, hoping to spot the dog. We were all in the parking lot, like, what do we call the dog? Let's call the dog. I said, we have to have the same name because we can't all be calling, here, puppy, puppy. So we decided on Franklin because of Franklin School. So Frankie, okay, everybody call for Frankie. So everyone would go up there and leave food. Debbie was one of the lucky ones. She spotted Frankie every time she stopped by the school to search for him. He always would look at me and be like, yeah, try to catch me. And I'd get out of the car really fast, and I'd try to jump up there. It'd take me like 10 minutes, and he'd be hiding. So he had all these hidden dens. And by the time you got up there in the brush, he was gone. It was like Houdini. The hillside where Frankie had his hidden dens was strewn with ketchup packets, empty chip bags, Remnants of carefully packed lunches tossed into garbage cans and snatched out again by Frankie. Just how long were those scraps keeping Frankie alive? I'd say a few years. Debbie kept going back to the school. My husband was like, you really should check in with the school now because this is really weird. Some lady is climbing up in the trees, you know, and the kids would be like, there he is. There's the dog. There he is. And he's they're trying to help me. And I'm running through the bush. I'm getting all cut up. So Debbie checked in with the school. They were aware of the dog and had been for a long time. The kids even nicknamed him the dog on the hill. The SPCA had been out to the school many times to try to catch the dog on the hill. Police regularly received coyote calls from residents mistaking Frankie for a coyote. No one had been able to catch him, though. So the neighbors stepped up their efforts. They placed a crate on the hillside and baited it with some meat. The meat was laced with trazodone, a tranquilizer. One of the group members had the knowledge and experience necessary to do this safely. Well, that didn't work twice. He chewed out of the metal wire. The third time, they used a crate with plexiglass walls so Frankie couldn't chew his way out. Someone in the group designed and built it. They checked the crate early on a Sunday morning, nearly four weeks since the group began their rescue efforts. This time, it had worked. Frankie had been caught. But it was not the happy story that you would think you were going to have, because he was vicious. And um, he broke his blood vessels all in his eyes from being choked, trying to fight everybody. Debbie was wine tasting two hours away when she got the call about Frankie. And I was like, you got him, that's great. And then she's like, um, yeah, but we don't have anywhere to put him. And I was like, what, what do you? And everybody that was like into it was like, oh, I can't take him, I'm not taking him, hell no. Oh no, I'm no way. Cause he was like a Cujo and he's yeah. really, and he was really scared. Scared, confused and covered in fleas. Debbie shared the code to her garage and said to wait there with Frankie. She would head home. She recounts what it was like when she first saw Frankie in her garage. It's really sad, super, super sad, just because he was just such a mess and he held his head really, really low to the ground, like just no confidence, no, you know, he was just broken. He was just broken. 
Um, so the next day I had an appointment with the vet and we, um, we had him shaved down cause he was in really bad shape. And that's, that's when, when they saw, saw the scars. Frankie had a scar that went from one side of his lower back torso all the way around his body to the other side. Debbie said it looked like his back end had been sewn back onto his body. That's how big the scar was. She and the vet had questions, and it turned out Frankie was microchipped. They would get some answers. So the original story was this lady lost him at Fort Funston, October, let's just say middle of October, 2015. But she had only had him for 10 days. Frankie broke free and ran away from this owner at Fort Funston, a popular park for dog walking just south of San Francisco. It's 13 miles from where Frankie eventually ended up on the hillside behind Franklin Elementary School. That was in 2015. Remember the date from the beginning of the story? 2019? Four years. That's how long this dog survived on his own. But what about the scar? I think you forgot to tell me something, because this dog has a scar that no dog should ever survive. I can't keep a dog if I don't really know what I'm dealing with his history. And that's when she said um, he was one of the dogs from South Korea from rescue. Yeah, from a meat, meat market. A report from Green Dog Rescue says this about Frankie's case. As some of you may know, there is a market for dog meat in South Korea, and there are trappers who set out snares to capture dogs to sell to market. Poor Frankie was caught in one of those snares, and because the hunters didn't come back, it embedded in his skin around his middle. A Korean animal rescue group found him in the snare and rescued him, and he wended his way to Green Dog in 2015. They called it Operation Frankie from South Korea because he was Frankenstein. They had to sew him back together. And here we are at Franklin, four years later, calling him Frankie because it was Franklin School. Maybe fate had a hand in transforming Frankie, the Frankenstein dog, into Frankie, the dog no longer on the hill. But how was he able to overcome all the trauma of his past? You know, he survived as the dog on the hill because of his past. If he didn't have those feral instincts from Korea, he would have never survived four years. His eyes were really, really black and sad when we first got him. Really black, like scary. Um, and now they're brown and they're smiling and they're happy. They're like these little half moons and they're, they smile with it, his smile. Frankie has spent the last two years living in the lap of luxury, although still a little wary of human laps. It was a treacherous journey to his forever home, but he's happy now and learning to trust. He's, he's a good forgiver of the human people. Debbie is a little less forgiving. She shares some advice that's come out of this experience. <sighs> people can be really nasty, you know? It's really awful. Um, animals and children don't have voices. And bullies pick on them, you know? And all you could do is, if you could make a change in one life, that's awesome. Do it. Don't be afraid to. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dog Edition. 
And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green grassy beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup, every day. Welcome back to Dog Edition. Take a moment to think deeply about what it means to have a dog in your life. Who benefits the most from that relationship? You or the dog? When you put that human-dog bond in the context of our culture, does it seem common or extraordinary? These are some of the questions addressed in a newly released film by documentarian power couple Matthew Sala and Rose Tucker. It's called We Don't Deserve Dogs. The film's title seems like a judgment. Humans, we don't deserve dogs. I was curious if this was a foregone conclusion filmmakers Matthew Sala and Rose Tucker made before shooting the film, or one they came to after hearing the many stories told throughout. I think it was actually almost more like a hypothesis to start the film from. I, you know, it's a really common phrase, and, and for those that don't know, it's a, it's a phrase that, like, on the internet, there'll be a, a very uplifting story of something wonderful that a dog's done, and, and often often something that people refrain is, is we don't deserve dogs. It's a challenge to uh, humanity. Uh, like, do we deserve the, uh, the love that dogs provide? There's a sentiment that's been expressed a number of times, and in one way or another, by various authors. The gist is... Try to be the person your dog thinks you are. Matthew viewed that sentiment as sort of a guiding principle for the film. We're sort of like, well, you know, what, what do we as humanity um, give back to, to the love that and loyalty that dogs provide? So while maybe you're out on your own dog walking journey, we're going to join filmmakers Matthew Sala and Rose Tucker on their journey around the globe to Chile, Uganda, Nepal, Pakistan, Scotland, Romania... 11 countries in total, 
to glimpse intimate portraits of people and the dogs they love. We wanted it to be as geographically broad as possible, so we started researching stories in, in, in parts of the world where we didn't know much about what it was like to, you know, what dog culture was like in these places. So uh, we hired all sorts of researchers. Some of them were film students, some were photographers, uh, some were street tour guides, um, basically people that, like, knew their communities really well and 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 obviously these people were all passionate about dogs as well so it wasn't hard convincing them to get on board and help us find these amazing stories like the story of former child soldiers in uganda a population that faced unimaginable human rights abuses unicef estimates that half of 10,000 children abducted to fight in the region's civil war since 1987 remain unaccounted for those who manage to escape return home with the weight of their trauma, only to be stigmatized by their communities. The story that we were telling was that um, these former soldiers are, are working with stray dogs that they're adopting to help them to, through their trauma. And so when they were recounting quite traumatic stories to us, they were holding their dogs and would sort of grab at them and hold onto them a bit closer as they were telling more difficult parts of the story. So a lot of it just sort of naturally found its way in front of the lens. And as a documentarian, you just have to sort of sit back and take it all in. Dogs are there for these humans. Lucy, one of the former child soldiers in Uganda, um, she said something that just really opened up my eyes. She said, I, I didn't know dogs could be trained to be your friend. And I thought just that, that you know, in a, in a culture where people don't always have dogs as friends, you know, having her discover that sort of in real time was really powerful. Dogs are not really thought of as friends in Pakistan either. In fact, dogs are not commonly allowed in homes. It's deeply rooted in the Muslim religion. But one person pushed against that traditional belief when she saved the life of a stray dog and invited her into her home. You know, I think Beanish, who, you know, she, she's a, a, a devout Muslim. Um, the book of religion for her prescribes not having a dog. But then she sort of appealed to her own version of it and, and her own higher power. Imagine it in a world where maybe your neighbours aren't very happy with you and stuff like that. And I think it really solidified her as kind of like pretty tough. Yeah, I mean, she had family and friends that refused to come and visit her at her home because she kept a dog there. And, you know, it takes a lot to, to push back against that kind of family pressure. Um, so, yeah, she really was very determined and, and, and very confident in her own beliefs. Beanish called the bond they shared a blessing. Yes, yeah, yes, she, she had her own interpretation that it was, yes. you know, God working through through Sheru, yes. the dog. Well, yeah. the, the, the basically the common phrase that in, in, in Muslim culture that is if you, if you have a dog in your house, the house will not be blessed. So this is her way of saying, well, I, you know what, I feel pretty blessed. <laughs> my God and my Allah is looking at what good has been happened to his creation. It is his creation and I'm taking care of it. The film is a kaleidoscope, with a lens sometimes pointed at the humans, like the dog walker in Istanbul who opens up emotionally and confides in the dogs, or the woman in Lima, Peru, who throws a lavish dog birthday party. And sometimes that lens is pointed at the dog. Often the dogs decided. Often they, they stole, stole us away from shots and sent us running up and down hills. And sometimes the dogs forced the filmmakers to find a stillness, a moment where the viewer can process a situation from the dog's perspective. Like a scene in Scotland that takes place in a pub with Val and her rescue dog, Major. 
The moment happens while Val is talking about a dog's capacity for forgiveness. When bad things have happened to them or when somebody's done something terrible to them, they always trust again, which amazes me, totally amazes me. The shot is of Major just watching her. They're in the pub and he's just watching and watching and keeping an eye on her. And she didn't realise because, you know, I'm, I'm down, you know, a foot off the ground filming filming these these sly looks that dogs give away. And she didn't even know that the dog had looked. I think it was a bit of a, an emotional thing for her because she didn't know Major had been looking at her in that way. There is no voiceover to tell you where in the world you are, to lead you through the story, or to pass judgment on any of the human-dog bonds. As documentarians, Matthew and Rose leave the question of whether we, humans, deserve dogs up to the viewers to answer. Exactly, exactly. And I know that, you know, we tackle some fairly challenging material um, in this film. Like we, we look at examining the culture of dogs as meat in Vietnam. And that was obviously one where we, uh, it was challenging to include it, but we wanted to make sure we did that in a completely observational, non-judgmental way. Um, because this is a part of life in this part of the world. And if we're telling a story about humans and dogs around the world, it would be sort of remiss to ignore that aspect of it. And just maybe learning about humans and dogs around the world from this beautifully framed and shot film, with its original soundtrack acting as an ever-present heartbeat tying us all together, will help us find more common ground than we ever thought possible. You know, I think we believe very much in a, in a world that's brought together through those sort of cultural understandings. And so if it is through something as simple as, you know, people watching this film and thinking about other people that they might not know, not know a great deal about and going, oh, that, that, that relationship there mimics my relationship with my, my dog. And, and there's differences and we respect those differences, but those similarities also have power. So I think, I think that's sort of the, the engine that we hope the film runs on for people. When I think about the times I shooed my dog away while I was busy working, or the times I interrupted his nap so I could demand attention I knew he would give freely and unconditionally, I'm convinced we don't deserve dogs. It is a thoughtful question, do we deserve dogs? I think we deserve dogs. I think dogs brighten our lives in such a way, and I'd like to think that I give back to my dog's lives in a way that is kind of meaningful. And, uh, you know, the whole purpose about uh, dog edition really is to help fix this imbalance that has been going on for way too many years. So, yes, I, I think we deserve dogs. All right. I like that take on it. That's a hot take. I'm, I, uh, I'll st- I'm a work in progress. <laughs> the presence of a dog cuddled up next to you, looking up when you make any kind of move, or even just following you around your home, can be like a tonic for when life serves up some challenges, or, in the case of our next story, serves divorce papers. In August of 1999, Donna Dees Thomas was working for The Late Show with David Letterman. From New York, the greatest city in the world, it's The Late Show with I had the best job in the business. I publicized Stupid Pet Tricks, Stupid Human Tricks, Top Ten lists. Her life's trajectory changed on August 10th, 1999, when news of a mass shooting in Los Angeles gripped the nation. President Clinton held a press conference. Once again, our nation has been shaken and our hearts torn by an act of gun violence. To the victims and their families, like all Americans, I offer 
our thoughts and prayers. Donna Dees. There was a shooting at a Jewish community center in Los Angeles in Granada Hills. And uh, fortunately, uh, none of the, the, killed, the children died, uh, but a gunman came in. It was a white supremacist who had never should have had access to a gun. He uh, managed to go through several loopholes in order to acquire his arsenal. And on, and we were, late show was happened to be on a dark week. It was vacation week. So I was so enraged. I, you know, I decided I want to volunteer for the gun violence prevention movement. Two months after that shooting, Donna and a group of activists in and around the New York area announced their intention to march on Washington, D.C. to advocate for stricter gun control laws. Their grassroots effort became known as the Million Moms March, which was first held on Mother's Day in 2000. Let's give a warm welcome to U.S. Representative Carolyn McCarthy. Happy Mother's Day. We, as mothers, fight every day for our children. And I know one thing. When a mother is trying to protect her child, I will say again and again, don't mess with us. Donna's years working at CBS Network on its communications team, as well as representing high-profile talent, including Dan Rather and David Letterman and Bob Schieffer, prepared her for the monumental task of organizing such a huge event. You take all of life's experiences and not really sure how they connect until that moment when they actually do connect. Uh, when I organized the Million Mom March, it was all of my experiences came together in one moment to create something that was pretty spectacular, something I had never done before. But because I had all these other life experiences, they just all converged with one moment. Another life event, unfortunately, converged at the same time as the Million Mom March. Right in the middle of me organizing the Million Mom March, my husband asked me for a divorce, which, um, and uh, he's a great divorce dad. I just want to say right out front, timing was not the best. Even under amicable circumstances, divorce can be stressful. And the couple also had to take into account how their two young children would react to the news. Phoebe was five, Lily was six, a little young to understand all the implications of a divorce, but not too young to understand the extra bit of news they received. Mommy and daddy are getting a divorce and we're going to get a dog. So Daisy was a result of trying to soften the blow of, of, of a failed marriage and, and the family sort of breaking apart. Dogs have been shown to help children deal with anxiety and stress. Some kids see their dog as a trusted neutral party and confide in them in a way they wouldn't ever do with a parent or even a friend. And sometimes a new dog is a great way to keep a kid's mind off of other things. I think if you've gone through a divorce, people understand the constant drama and battles you have. The dog definitely was the distraction we needed at the time. Donna involved the girls in the decision-making process. Big sister Lily thought it might help Phoebe's fear of dogs. They settled on a soft-coated Wheaton Terrier that they named Daisy. That's the one Lily said, let's get because Phoebe's not, not you know, a little afraid of dogs. So they might be a good match for each other. And they were. 
they kind of, Phoebe uh, would, when I brought Daisy home, Phoebe would sit up on the sofa high up so, so Daisy could nip at her feet. And then Daisy would start suddenly just, I mean, very gradually would uh, warm up to Phoebe and they became like best buddies forever. So Sorting out child custody agreements and visiting days is hard enough. The shuffling between homes can be confusing and disruptive to a child. Do they have the right books? Do they have the right shoes? Do they have their things? Uh, it's a very complicated time for kids, and I didn't really appreciate it until Daisy had a very hard time being house trained for, for one of the smartest dogs ever. She was very confused about the whole process, and I think it was because of going back and forth and back and forth. Finding neutral ground is key to helping kids, and in this case, dogs, adjust. Nesting, sometimes called bird nesting, has become commonplace. This means to keep the family residence intact as a home where both parents rotate living with their children while otherwise dwelling in separate residences. In Donna's case, the couple had a vacation home that served the same purpose. That became their neutral ground for Daisy and the girls. Sort of that was the place that she felt the best and the safest. And ultimately, I realized that's where my kids felt the best. Mommy and Daddy were able to come and go from from a house that they shared. Along with the many positives of introducing a dog into the family during a divorce, there may be some bumps along the road, as was the case with Daisy. She was good for all of us. Um, she was also good for the divorce lawyers because a lot of a lot of time went into arguing over the vet bills. Who's going to pay the vet bills? And I do have to say. It was crazy arguments to be had because my ex-husband's a very generous person and, and he did take care of the vet bills. Donna found comfort in Daisy and the girls loved having a dog to play with and care for. Daisy welcomed all of the affection. She was just the perfect pup for that experience. And I somebody would call her Daisy the divorce dog in her presence and she would look at me like, please don't. Don't label me with that. Even though she may not have approved of the moniker, Daisy the Divorce Dog was appreciated throughout her long life as a symbol of non-judgmental love and stability for a family trying to cope. When Daisy's health began to fail and it was time to say goodbye, Donna took Daisy on one last road trip a pastime that she had always enjoyed. I drove her to Ann Arbor, where my oldest daughter, Lily, was at the University of Michigan, and because Lily wanted to be with her. And, you know, it was a very spiritual moment of saying goodbye to Daisy in Ann Arbor. And once again, Daisy found a way to help this family cope with a difficult time. When we left the um, vet hospital, we stopped the florist to get some daisies and, you know, have a little, you know, moment. My daughter and I were very sad. And this blind dog came out from behind the counter and sort of bowed down at us. And the owner of the florist said, that is so odd. That is so odd. The dog never leaves behind, whatever. And that's when I realized there was a, there was a daisy presence around us. There was a spiritual thing going on. And because time marches on and change is inevitable, Donna and her daughters eventually had to face another difficult transition. Donna's decision to give up her New York apartment, their home. If you grew up in New York City, you'll understand that means saying goodbye to longtime neighbors and building handymen, perhaps a doorman or the person behind the counter at the corner store who knows your name and just how you did in school. 
all the people you grow close to living in a city like New York. When I told my uh, younger daughter, Phoebe, that I was giving up their apartment that they grew up in, you know, as the divorced single mom, they, and Phoebe was very sad about saying goodbye to, to the building. And so she said, well, I think we need to get a dog and that will help. I'm like, here we go again. Here we go again. And that is just what they did. Donna brought home a poodle Wheaton Terrier mix who reminds them a little of Daisy, the divorce dog, and her unconditional love. Here we go again. I love it. I love it. Once a dog person, always a dog person. I lean on my dog in tough times. Daisy is extraordinary, and I got to give my uh, uh, shout-outs to my dogs, Kanga and Rue, because this past week was a tough one. I lost my Hanai mom, who... um, is in Hawaii, Hanai means uh, adopted, but we were very, very close. Mary Omwick, uh, she passed away on Wednesday. And the thing is the dogs knew a little bit about what was going on and gave me an extra hug, an extra love. They have been there with me and they just sense what is going on in the world. So yeah, I rely on my dogs for sure. Yeah, and I and I agree. They do understand. They know and they sense when you need them to be there. Um, all right. Well, this was this was kind of a heavy episode. We got into a lot of serious stuff here, but we're going to end on an up note. Join us at the hydrant for some of the doggy headlines that have caught our attention. Listening to this deep stuff may drive you to drink or drive <laughs> your dog to drink. Well, the good thing is there are beers for dogs. It's true. There are non-alcoholic beers. And, you know, a little company in St. Louis called Anheuser-Busch has, a, has, a, has one of those beers for dogs called Dog Brew. And here's why it's important for you. They are running a contest because they are looking to get a dog influencer, meaning a dog, who will be like an, an advertising spokesperson, a spokesdog for the company. They're going to pay $20,000 salary plus like stock options and all sorts of crazy stuff for your dog. We will put a link to that if you think your dog might have the chops to be a spokesdog. I think my dog does. <laughs> yeah, and I want to try the beer. We need we need to try this. Uh, we need to do a taste test sometime. Pam, oh yes, for all these Definitely. different dog brews. We've we've done uh, ice cream for dogs. Yes, and I think you know a natural uh, a natural addition is beer for dogs. Oh, absolutely. What do you see? Absolutely. What do oh, you see? This you one? know what? I learned something new that in all the years of my life, I I did not know this. I learned this new today. So Congress is a dog-friendly workplace. Lawmakers have actually been bringing their dogs to the Capitol since the 1800s. And this is something I didn't know. So let's hope that Biden's dog, Major, really sort of settles into his life in D.C. finally. So because there are all these friends he could be making at the office. He could could bring the executive and the legislative branches together, maybe host a barbecue, have some dog brews at the on the South Lawn. <laughs> That's cool. I He's didn't the know kind that. of dog you can have a beer with. Yeah, <laughs> he does. That's what they say. They you, you want a president that you can have a beer with. Well, maybe maybe Major and Champ can do it. They keep making our show, don't they? They do. <laughs> well, that is all we have for you today. Thank you for bringing Dog Edition along with you on your walk. We will be back with another episode, but chances are you and your dog will be taking a walk between now and then. 
And so we have something else for you to listen to. If you're interested in hearing more from some of our guests, please check out DPN's sister show, The Long Leash, for Jim's extended conversations. And follow Dog Edition so you can take us along on your dog walk next time. Social isolation and loneliness can be tough, especially on seniors during the pandemic. Can virtual visits with dogs help folks stay socially connected and engaged? We think so. I am looking forward to hearing that on the next episode. We also dig into the story of how a teen entrepreneur is using his sewing skills to help senior dogs get adopted. It is a story that caught the attention of former President Obama, and we think you'll like it too. You'll hear those stories and more. Dog Podcast Network is for dog lovers by dog lovers, and that means we want to hear from you. Visit our website, dogedition.com, and there's a button in the bottom right of every episode page so that you can easily leave us a voicemail and share your thoughts with us. Check out the show notes for links and information about the guests on this episode. We are looking for correspondence here at Dog Podcast Network as we grow this network. And so if you are a content producer or a journalist or a podcaster or an audio storyteller who loves dogs, check out our 101 Dog Stories contest with over $15,000 in prize money. And join our pack. Be sure to follow Dog Edition in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about the show. I'm Pamela Lawrence, and I'll see you at the dog park. And I'm James Jacobson. I want to thank you for listening today. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.